Tonight we'll be in 2 Thessalonians. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, please. And see if I can find it. And we got about halfway through chapter 2, so I think we're going to start in verse 13 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. And we'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to sing beautiful worship to you, Lord, because you're worthy. Thank you for the voices you've given us and the abilities you've given us to show our gratitude in that way. It's a sacrifice of praise, and we're glad to give it. Uh, You're worthy of that. And now we pray that we'd offer the sacrifice of our ears now, the uh, ears to hear, um, to listen, to to take in everything you have for us in your word, and that, uh, that it would bear much fruit, that it would stabilize our lives and help us to be um, immovable, but also a, a rock of refuge, as you are a rock of refuge, but a rock of refuge for this world, that they might come and, and find uh, protection and stability in you, Lord. And so, Lord, help us to be those examples in this world, a, a group of people that have trusted in you and whose lives are steadfast and immovable. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't always feel steadfast and immovable, but that is the goal, isn't it? Our lives need to be a beacon of light, uh, a place that people can look to and say, so it works. So God's word works. That's always the goal. I always come to scripture and I want it to change me and make me better and all that, but mainly for my own selfish reasons. I just need my life figured out, you know. Um, That never ends, I don't think. I was kind of hoping there'd be like a a decade that I'd reach where, oh, now I've attained or I've got it, you know. And uh, Nope, there's always something new. Uh, God always has more for us, a deeper understanding. As Paul goes uh, back to some teachings that he's given the the, the Thessalonians in this second letter, to the Thessalonians. Last week we went over quickly some major doctrines, and so I want to play a little bit of catch up tonight, or backtracking maybe, that's a better way to put it. So we understand in our hearts as believers some, some sound scriptures to go off of for why we believe that Jesus is coming back for his bride, not just the second coming, but the rapture. Why we believe that we have. Um, the promise from God to escape these fiery trials that are coming upon the world, that we are not going to be in the great tribulation, that we're taken away out of this uh, before that trial comes on the earth. And some scriptures that gives us a hope to look for the Jesus and not for the Antichrist. That's what we're looking for. And so a couple of scriptures I wanted to go over was Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Daniel gets a prophecy from the Lord and understanding a future uh, picture of Israel. That's his concern. That's Daniel's concern. Daniel's in captivity. He's writing this from Babylon. He's in a difficult spot. And so as you look at Babylon, I mean, think about the conditions that Daniel would be writing this in. There's not a lot of hope. We're displaced from our land. There is no Uh, we have no promise of going back to it necessarily. I mean, we do, but that's not on the horizon. It could be years away. And yet this is the promise that God gives Daniel while he's there in captivity to the nation of Israel. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your peoples and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy as king, basically. These things are the end of the age, end of time, okay? So he's not just talking about, Daniel, for for your time period, for your lifetime, these things. No, if you're going to end transgressions, there'll be no more transgressions after this time period. If you're going to end sin, there's never going to be a sin again after this ending of the 70 weeks, there's, there's going to be everlasting righteousness. The, the, we'll never have to worry about blowing it again. It's, our righteousness is perfect forever at the end of these 70 weeks. There'll be no more visions, no more prophecies, 
and Christ will be sitting on the throne at the end of these 70 weeks. That sets us up for what do these mean? You know, what's this 70 weeks? Well, when we say weeks, we know exactly what we mean. In Western culture, it means seven-day period. Well, in the Bible, it can be anything. It can be seven days. It can be seven months. It can be seven years. And we believe he means 70 weeks of years based on the time frame of things that have already happened. Part of these 70 weeks have been fulfilled, and it lines up perfectly. Okay. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or a total of 69 weeks of years. So we do the math on that, that's 490 years. We know from the time that Nebuchadnezzar sent uh, Nehemiah, uh, not Nebuchadnezzar, um, Cyrus, thank you. Uh, or Xerxes Cyrus, uh, sent Nehemiah back to do this was, okay, from that time that he went board to, to fulfill, to build that, to do that, to restore Israel, up until Jesus came in on the donkey, his first coming, was exactly that, to the day. So we know that the 69 weeks of years was passed and finished and concluded and fulfilled as Jesus came in on the donkey. Now, we're left with one week of years, a seven-year period, for the 70 to be completed. And at the end of that 70th week that we're waiting on still, that's an end of everything. That's the second coming of Christ. That is the fulfillment of all time. Christ is seated on the throne. Okay, we're waiting for that. Well... Revelation chapters 6 through 19 describes a seven-year period for Israel. Now, we've got this gap, though. There's a reason he doesn't just do it consecutively. Like 69, now 70, we've got this gap of time, which is a mystery because it's not really documented, except it is, isn't it? He says there's going to be 69 weeks a year until Messiah comes. And then we have the 70th week. Why not just all the way through? There's this funny pause in Daniel's prophecy. And so as Paul preaches and talks about it, he says there's this mystery called the church. There's this group of people who come and believe on Jesus. All of Israel rejects their Messiah until Messiah the prince is cut off, it says. Okay, let's read that. Let's finish that so I don't go too far. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks the street shall be built again, the wall even in troublesome times. And after that, or after the 62 weeks, so you get the seven-week period, after the 62-week period, 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. That's a difficult thing for them to comprehend. Is there, so Messiah, the Savior, is going to be cut off. Is he going to be come back? Is he coming? Yes. See, there's, a, there's a first and a second coming of Jesus. The first time he came, he got caught off. Israel rejected their Messiah. They didn't believe on him. Jesus wept and said, you should have known your time. You should have known that this was going to happen. You should have known the day that I was coming. Because I told you in Daniel chapter 9, the day that I was coming. From the time that Xerxes said, go build. And Cyrus said, go build the temple. You should have started the clock. And you should have known that I was coming. But you didn't. You didn't discern it. So you've got this gap. And throughout Paul's ministry, as Paul kept trying to go to the synagogue, go to the synagogue, we have that one moment, which I think just sheds light on everything, as he describes this mystery of the church, where the synagogue rejected him one too many times. He went right next door and started a church. Right next door to the synagogue after they rejected him. And the book of Acts is the story of the birth of the church, this mystery. This time gap is filled between the 69 weeks of years and the 70th week. Now, there's going to come a time, which we've been discussing here in 2 Thessalonians, where God's going to say, now come up here, church, believers, trusters in Christ, because that 70th week needs to start. And that's not for you. That's for Israel. So I'm going to take you home. I'm going to bring you up and keep you out of that time of trial, that seven-year period that's meant for Israel to get a second chance to receive their Messiah. 
So after 1626 here that we just started reading about halfway through, we see the church now. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he, this person, this prince who is to come, that's going to send his people to destroy the city. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, one week of years. Israel, I'm going to bring peace. Israel, I'm the Messiah you've always waited for. See, Israel is looking for a Messiah prophesied by Moses, a man like Moses. He's going to be like Moses. So they're looking for a man. The Antichrist is going to fit that bill perfectly. I'm the guy. I'm a man like Moses. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to build your temple that you've always wanted. The third temple will be built. I'm going to help you do that. I'm going to make a covenant with you for seven years. Let's get this thing built. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years into that seven-year week of years, he, the Antichrist, shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. We're done with it. No more red heifers, no more lambs, no more goats. And on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. On the desolate. Now, if you weren't here last week, last week we talked about how he sets himself up, this Antichrist, as God on the throne. Three and a half years into it, he says, no, you're worshiping the wrong God. I'm God. And they sit, he sits three and a half years into that seven-week period. I'm going to sit there. Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence. And causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, I don't have time to fill you in on everything that's happened so far, but trust me, this is where we see the unholy trinity manifest itself. You've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the last days, in the great tribulation period, you're going to have the unholy spirit. You're going to have the antichrist, and you're going to have a dragon that represents somewhat the Father, an unholy trinity. He... This guy is going to perform great signs. We talked about that last week, lying signs and wonders. So that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, like a prophet we know. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword, assassination attempt, and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So you either worship or die. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Very similar wording when he describes what it means to be in Christ. There is no more rich man. There is no more poor. There is no more slave. There is no more free. All are one in Christ. He's the opposite. That no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, of a man. His number is 666. And of course, you will find on the internet all sorts of ideas about what that means if you add up the numbers of their letters. Let's put it this way. As a Christian, we're not looking for him. We're gone. And that's a big thing that can catch us off guard or distract us from what we're supposed to be doing. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're not trying to calculate numbers. John, I think you've got six, six. Check his head for a tattoo. You know, we're not, what a waste of time when we're supposed to be telling about people. Look, look up. Jesus is coming. Look up. Your redemption draws near. Act now. Receive Christ now before it's too late. Instead of saying, hey, did you, did you read the number of the beast? I think I found him. We're not supposed to be looking for him. We're looking for the rapture. We're looking for Jesus. This temple. If you turn to Revelation, it's, it's a long read, but I, I've, been, I've been letting you out early for the last few weeks. So you... I got time I can make up here. 
Well, Revelation 12 and 13 really covers this, but it, it is cryptic. I know it's not perfect, but it's there. And this is in the, remember, Revelation 6 through 19 is the seven-year period, and there's a bunch of stuff that happens, and we believe it's chronological, or at least I do. We have this thing happening in 12 and 13 where the nation of Israel feels like they need to flee what's happening in Israel. We need to flee Jerusalem. Three and a half years, we've been fine with this Antichrist. He's been helping us. He's been building the temple. But now he set himself up as God on the throne, and we see 12 here. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child, capital C, that's Jesus, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,262 days. All of that was to describe this woman. We believe the woman is Israel. We believe this because of Joseph's dream. Joseph had a dream, says, Mom, Dad, I saw the moon and the sun and the stars, and there they were all bowing down to worship me. What? What is going on here? We're not going to bow down. So we believe that's a picture because that is Jacob. Jacob is the, his name gets changed to Israel. He's the father of the nation. He is the nation. We believe this woman is that woman. She is the one that gives birth. Israel gives birth to Messiah, Jesus. Jesus has died, caught up into heaven. We see all that. And then we go into this area here where we're talking about halfway through the great tribulation period. They feel like for half Half that time, three and a half years, 1,260 days to the day, you can time it. They need to go hide from this Antichrist, and he's prepared a place for them. A lot of speculation as to where that is. We believe that might be Petra. It's a city in the, in the country of Jordan. It's a rock city. Maybe. Could be. It's easily defendable. Say so it can hold about a million people plus. Who knows? That, that's, that's speculation. I'd ever want to say it's, it's got to be that. It probably is that. That's the most likely place, but it doesn't have to be that. If I'm wrong on that, it doesn't mean I'm a false prophet. We don't know. But it looks pretty cool. Look it up online. It's an amazing place. Now, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. A third of the stars, a third of the angels went with him. We believe Michael was one of the lead angels. Gabriel was another lead angel. We believe Lucifer was the third leader. So the third leader, Lucifer, falls and takes all of those that were with him and followed him with him. Well, I don't know why they went. We'll figure that out later on. We don't have any other reason other than this as to why a third of the angels fell with him. But they decided to follow him. Remember, hell was designed for those folks. Those, that one third. The only reason we ever go to hell is because we follow that leading, that, that rebellion. We, we say, Satan, you're right. We don't believe in this God. We reject this Messiah. We reject his authority. And we follow Satan to the place that God prepared for him. It was not made for us. It's a choice we make. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Right before Jesus came the first time, we see demonic activity on its highest level. 
casting out demons, had to divide up the 12 into groups of two. So six teams went out to go ahead and start casting out demons and healing people. The spiritual warfare on the earth manifesting itself publicly was at an all-time high. I believe we'll see that again. Well, we won't. But when Satan's down here, when he knows his time is short, when he knows I've only got seven years left, I think we're going to see some crazy stuff, and maybe even before. His wrath has come. God's wrath on him has come. And God, his wrath, of course, is, is his response to that. Now, when the dragon saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, that place prepared for her, where she is nourished for a time, one year, times, two years, and half a time, half a year, we believe, I believe, from the presence of the serpent, three and a half years. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. How do we get into this rock city? How do we get through this one tiny crevice and get to all these people? Pour water in there. Fill it with water. Who knows how they do it? Aqueduct? I don't know. But they try to divert as much water as they can. Flush them out. But the earth helped the woman, nation of Israel. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So they're believers. They're coming to know their Messiah. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. That was that assassination attempt, maybe. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I'm not going to read the rest of it. You could read it on your own. Thank you for indulging me in that. That's the third temple that I wanted to focus on here. There's a place of worship. There's an opportunity. The nation of Israel is looking for a man who will let them build, not just anywhere, but right where the dome of the rock is, which is a mosque, which is a place of of holiness to the Muslims. Nobody can go up there. You can visit, but you better not be caught praying up there. They'll throw you off. Well, kick you out. I don't know if they'll literally throw you off. Maybe they would some, but some of the cantankerous rabbis will go up there and just do it on purpose just to poke them a little bit, you know. And they get into a rock fight, and then they get thrown off, and that's, that's usually the end of it. There's a group called the uh, well, they're, they're designed to build the third temple. They have everything ready for the third temple, they say on their website, except the location. The location. We know from some prophecies, one specifically at the end describes how are we going to deal with this? Well, there's going to be a wall built. There's going to be a, a cutting off to separate the holy from the unholy, the, the profane from the holy. That might be the solution. In fact, that was just posed, and I put that on our Facebook page at Calvary Chapel. It was just an idea thrown out there. What if we just cut it in half and let the Jews have half and the Muslims have their half, which is, does go along with prophecy. Once that location, I mean, if we see these things coming all to, all the chess pieces are moving. They're always moving. I'm horrible at chess. All the actors are right where they need to be. All the countries are aligned with who they're supposed to be aligned. That's what we've been watching decades and decades. Sometimes they come together and then they break apart. We're like, oh, man, that was so close. 
And we see some people, well, wait, they're not supposed to be here. They're, 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 on our t- they're supposed to be on our team in the last days, and they hate us right now, so that can't be time yet. We've been waiting for all these chances. Well, all of a sudden, things are really, really lining up. But, you know, we say that, all, we say that a lot. We'll see, right? We'll see. Maybe it'll break up again. Maybe God will give us a break and say, maybe there's more time for you guys to come to know the Lord. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe this is it. The first temple was built, 1 Kings chapter 5. We're not going to read it. These are just for notes. Second temple was built, Ezra chapter 3. First temple got destroyed. That was Solomon's temple. Second temple built when they came out of captivity, out of Babylon. And Ezra was one of the first guys back, second actually to lead the group back, and was able to go ahead uh, uh, to start this temple build. The third temple is spoken of in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolations spoken of by Daniel the prophet, we just read that, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. I only bring that verse up because in the last days there will be a holy place. Right now there's no temple. So in order for the last days to happen, there must be a temple, a holy place for him to defile. That will be built. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. And the forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolations. The Antichrist will sit on the throne. Revelation 11, 1 through 2. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years. In other words, there's not enough room up there to make the temple and the court of the Gentiles on the outside. That'll have to be cut off basically, for this third temple. Do you have that one picture that you can put up, Carolyn, or no? The, uh, the one with the menorah, basically. It's the candelabra. This is the Temple Institute. And they've built it. They've got it ready. It's sitting there in glass facing the Dome of the Rock, which you can see that gray dome in the back there on purpose. So that's them... You know, giving everybody a hard time. See, we've already made it. We're going to be over there pretty soon is the idea. That's all one piece of gold. It's all hammered out of a single piece of gold. All ready to go. Along with everything else that needs to be. It's all in warehouses, all ready to go. The whole temple can be built. All the materials are set. Anyway, I thought that was the most striking picture. I mean, who wants to see a warehouse full of crates? So I thought that was a pretty good picture to pull and to show you. It's ready. They're thinking that way. When it'll actually happen, we don't know. You know, But there it is in living color, an actual physical thing that you can go see. Okay. Um, now, should we get into our text for tonight? <laughs> I told you, I can do what I want. All right? Chapter 2, verse 13, 2 Thessalonians, because we've already talked about the lying signs and wonders. If you didn't, go back and read. We pick up with, what should we do knowing that we're supposed to be looking for the rapture and that it hasn't happened yet and there's hope for us and Bob didn't die without Christ? We're all going to be in heaven eventually. Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Those are the two things he chose you through. You believing in the truth and being set apart by the Holy Spirit, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the tradition which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. I want you to hold fast to Scripture, not to rumors, not to false teachers, not to new winds of doctrine that flow in that aren't written down. He says, I want you to trust either the written word that you've trusted in before, and I also want you to trust in the letters that we've written to you, but no other letters, just ours. That's pretty exclusive. How do you say that to somebody? You know, what makes you, Paul, better than all the other roving preachers that come through our town and say that they have a word from the Lord? How do we know the difference? He says, I just do. 
Because everything Paul taught lines up with Scripture. Everything they teach can be refuted by Scripture. That's the difference. When Miriam, this is Moses' sister, and Aaron, Moses' brother, decided to rebel against Moses and against God's authority that he placed over them, Moses. They, their argument was, has not God spoken through us as well? Moses never disputed that. The, the difference was, he had, but he isn't now. See, it doesn't matter whether I've been a faithful preacher for how long have I been here? 22 years? Great! That doesn't mean tomorrow I don't start teaching false doctrine. It doesn't mean that. I don't get to build up a bank account of truth so that I can spread some lies later on at the end. That's not allowed. The teacher needs to be spirit-filled, needs to line up with Scripture, cannot go beyond what's written. When they do, you are open to criticism. When it lines up with Scripture, honestly, I'm not open to criticism. When it lines up with Scripture. When my opinions come out, and I have a lot of opinions, yes, of course, J.D., just stick to the Word of God. You're good at that. It's the other stuff that bothers me. I understand that. Valid. <laughs> when it comes to God's Word, mm-mm. Mm-mm. Every one of us, when we teach God's Word, when we share from the Bible, when we share Scripture, it's above reproach because His Word is true and we stand upon it. And we trust it. Paul says, I don't want you to be go beyond what's written. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you the epistles Peter's talking about. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destructions, as they do also the rest of scriptures. Peter says, Paul's epistles are scripture. Paul says, my words are scripture. It's fair. I mean, I'd be a little leery of Paul. So you can trust everything I've ever written. Okay. But Peter comes alongside and says, yeah, it's hard to understand sometimes. But it's true what Paul says, all of his epistles. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, remember that, that's going to come up later, on behalf of one against the other. To go beyond what's written puffs a person up, and causes problems. And we're going to run into a scripture that speaks directly to that in a minute. One of our cross-references. Psalm 138.2 I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. We don't worship the Bible, but God says I've placed my word above my name. That's how important it is. Because what I've said is who I am, basically. It's me. It describes me, it's my character, it's what I like, it's what I don't like. I mean, we don't worship the text or the font or the paper or the ink, but we worship the mind behind it, and we can trust everything that he's ever said. Back to our text. Verse 16 of chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work, or word and work. The whole point of me sharing this with you is may God now take all that you've just read and absorbed by his spirit and comfort you with it. That it might rest your minds and your hearts and your spirits and your souls. You can now rest. Oh, thank goodness. Thought we'd missed the rapture. Thought we'd missed God. Thought we'd missed Jesus. Not at all. Comfort your hearts. And then what that does is it establishes you in every good word and work. Establishment. Very important. Can you put up that second picture for me? You guys like pictures. It keeps you awake. I know that. That's established. 
I love cranes. Have you ever watched the videos where they didn't put the outriggers out? And they just, you know, just going to move something really quick. And they pull up and they reach out and they grab it. And all of a sudden, oh, no, oops, and it's too late. Once that thing goes, it goes. They put those outriggers out so far and they lift them so high that the wheels don't touch. It is an immovable crane. It is steadfast. Guys, in God's word, we need to be that. We may, he may move us around and all, but when we start doing the heavy lifting, when we start walking with the Lord and doing what we're supposed to do, put those out. God's word, boom. I am immovable. Makes you so much stronger, so much able to do as the engineers designed it to do. As God designed us, I can, I can by faith move mountains. If my outriggers are out and I'm trusting in the Lord, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can, provided it's his will. Okay, thank you for humoring me and putting up a neat truck picture. I like truck pictures. Yeah, I I am a kid. Chapter 3, and we'll finish up tonight. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. He wants the word of the Lord to spread like wildfire, and he prays that it is glorified. That it's put in a place in people's heart to where God is reigning supreme by his word in people's lives. Glorified, just as it is with you. I can see God's word glorified. I don't know that I think about it that way. God's word glorified in my life. How does that show itself? by obedience to God's word, I live my life in accordance to God's word, and the fruit that comes from it is glory to God. It's glorified. It's very simple. And that we might be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, it says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Everybody can hear the gospel, but not everybody is touched by the gospel or changed by the gospel because it's not mixed with faith. The unreasonable men, the wicked men, don't have faith. They may have heard the exact same words. I mean, you think of the thieves on the cross, one on one side, one on the other. They, hear, they, they know exactly who's in between them, and yet one believes and one doesn't. It's a 50-50. If Jesus, I mean the prince of preachers, right, gets 50%, Don't feel so bad when people don't receive the gospel when you're sharing it. It's okay. Family members that you prayed for for years just aren't getting it. It isn't that you're doing it wrong or there's a better uh, style that you could adapt that maybe would uh, reach them better. The truth is the truth. And if it's not mixed with faith, if they don't believe, if they don't take what they've heard and apply it to their lives and believe on it, It cannot work. It will not work because it's not applied. Verse 3, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Command. That's a pretty strong word, Paul. These aren't open to negotiations. The things I'm sharing with you aren't Paul's thoughts, deep thoughts from Paul in prison. These are commands. As your spiritual father, I want you to listen to me. You need to do this. Okay. Paul had that authority. But, he continues in verse 5, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Guide those hearts. Move those hearts into those two places. The love of God and then the patience of Christ. Second Chronicles 20.33 Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for as yet the people had not directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. When Paul prays for that to happen to somebody, I pray that God would direct your hearts towards these things. There is a response from us that causes us to be directed. We have to let him. It's a free will. 
Because although God wants that, Paul hopes that, he prays that, Second Chronicles says it won't do any good if you don't. They had heard God's word, but they hadn't applied it. They hadn't been directed to God. Their hearts weren't placed with their father. And so the high places, these are the other places of worship, the other gods in their lives were not taken away because although they heard it, they didn't really do it, didn't take it to heart. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 57 through 60. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that he might incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. There is a purpose for us letting our hearts be directed to the Lord. I pray that he'd incline our hearts to himself. That's a good prayer. Yes, it's good for you. Yes, it's for your growth. And yes, it's for your maturity and all that. But more importantly, at the end, that verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. He gets glorified in that. If I don't apply the word of God to my life and let it change me, how in the world can I tell people that they need to receive God's word when I haven't? We know that, but nodding and agreeing with what we hear tonight isn't the same as doing it. That's just agreement. If I really believe it, it'll show up tomorrow when I do it in my life. Verse 6. But we command you, there it is again, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw, pull away from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we are not disorderly among you. Nor do we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we may not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. We live the life that we're supposed to live so that you can see that. We never thought you owed us anything. We never thought that we deserved anything or that we could take anything, although I had the authority to do so. He writes about that in 1 Corinthians. We didn't do it because we were trying to do a, a bigger picture here. I want you to not think that way. I want you to live your life and to work hard and to eat the bread that you've earned. Not that somebody else has earned. Don't be taking food out of their mouth or out of their kids' mouths. And I want you to withdraw from those that walk that way, that are disorderly. Why does he want them to walk away? To be mean? No. 1 Corinthians tells us why. In chapter 5, Paul writes a rough letter to the Corinthian church to let them know that he's discovered something or heard something about somebody in their church that's actually celebrated, and it's sin. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife! Exclamation point. What in the world is going on in your church? Here's the puffed up part. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you, withdrawing yourself from someone who's living disorderly. When you go beyond what's written, you puff yourself up. Paul says you are puffed up. You think you're better than all those that won't go beyond God's word. We see that happening in churches all over the country this month, don't we? Going beyond what's written, and they are puffed up with pride. And it is their downfall. And it is abomination to God. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. I thought we weren't supposed to judge. 
In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul's concern is don't affirm their sin. Confront it. Tell them they can be saved from it. Tell them it's such a big sin that I can't fellowship with you because it's wrong. You need to be delivered from that. I'm turning you over to Satan, not for the destruction of everything, but just your flesh, so that your soul can be saved. Why did Jesus die on the cross if he didn't die for that sin? What sin is there that he died for? If he didn't die for that sin, which he categorizes with all and lumps in with all the other sins in the Bible, if he didn't die for that one and that is a mistake and it's okay, then they all are okay. And Christ died in vain, and there's no need for a sacrifice. We don't need a lamb that takes away the sin of the world because there is no sin. I don't, I'm not doing this because I hate him. I'm doing this because I love him. True love. True love is I don't want to be comfortable with you for the next 40 years, and you die in your sin and go to hell, and I get to go to heaven because I knew better, but I didn't tell you about it. That's not love. That's selfishness. That's comfort. I have a problem with that. I love being comfortable in conversations. I hate confrontation. I just do. I'd rather just avoid you. Never see you again. I just don't want to talk to you about it. You know. But when it comes to these things, that's the most loving thing we can do is to confront people about their sin. Look, Jesus died in that, died for that sin. It's very important we understand that. To affirm is not to love. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one. Now, six, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That sin left unchecked and celebrated will ruin the entire loaf of bread, all of it. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, get rid of sin, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, not with sin. Let us not come to that altar with sin in our lives. Let's get rid of it. Nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's not where the story ends with this guy. As they received Paul's first letter, they did exactly what they told him to, what he told them to do. They l- made the guy leave. Second Corinthians chapter two, the second letter, five through eleven. But if anyone has caused grief, Paul says, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by major- the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought to rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Along with confronting the sin, you must be ready to receive a repentant person back. And Paul says it's time. He's repentant. He's left it. He's admitted it. He's acknowledged it. He's confessed it. He wants to come back. Don't leave him out there. He'll be swallowed up. Bring him back in and love on him like you've never loved on him before. Because it's worked. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are uh, obedient in all things. I gave you a tough assignment to see, and you did it. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also will forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Satan can work if we leave him in the church. Satan can work if we leave a repentant sinner out in the open, unprotected, and not brought back into the fold. He'll work both places. Leave those that are walking disorderly, that they might become orderly, is the idea. Finish up our text here, I think. Yeah. For even when we were with you, verse 10 of chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, we commended you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. 
For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with them that he may be ashamed. There's some serious discipline going on. Can you imagine? We don't do half the things. We don't do a, a tenth of the things we should probably do sometimes. Oftentimes, I just I consider these meetings and Sunday morning meetings as a mixed group. It's like we're on this hillside. You've got 5,000 people that have come out to see. I don't know who's a believer and who's not. That's how I treat it. Now, I don't let someone sit in the back and crack open a beer and you know, do whatever they want to do. There are some limits to the amount of sin we allow in here. I'm not going to let a couple make out in the back either. You know, there's some limits. But for the most part, I'm hoping that the Word of God, if they come continually, often, that the Word of God will penetrate and begin to change like it does, like, like water on a rock, you know, slowly but surely, working its work that it does. That's my hope, anyway. And that's why we don't do probably, you know, more than we probably should. We probably should do more, but we don't. I'll let God convict us on that if we need to do anything else. But we try to be led of the Spirit. Don't grow weary in doing good. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Don't throw him out, but do call him on it. Uh, Oh my gosh, I just went to my Bible and I went like this. I'm so used to scrolling on my phone, I just tried to scroll the paper. God help me. (sighs) Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. So in other words, look for that if you want a proof. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book. Thank you for Paul's rough, beautiful, loving heart. He's a good spiritual father. And we're thankful for that. And so, Lord, tonight we heard your word. We prayed earlier that our ears would be hearing. Now, Lord, help us to be doing. If there was anything in tonight's teaching that caused our minds to maybe do flip-flops and we need to check ourselves because your word says one thing and we feel another, Lord, help us to submit to your word as was, was taught tonight. To submit to you, your mind, your heart, your thoughts on all these things and that they're commands. It's not something that's debatable. That we'd hold fast to your word. We'd rest upon your word. We'd be immovable and steadfast. And that starts with us just believing your word. And then belief means we use it. We apply it. Help us to do that tonight. Lord, I pray that you bless these people tonight as they've taken the time to hear your word and to set this time aside in their life to be encouraged, but also taught by your word and by your spirit. And pray for the Wednesday night school teachers and their hearts as they pour down into these kids and loved on them and taught your word. I pray that those kids would be blessed and that those teachers would be refreshed and refilled. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.